welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. One sort of uh, side question. Um, I'm not sure how far you go into the into the mining methods, but you must must know quite a lot about it. Um, uh, back in like 2000 or 2004, uh, my my grandfather was chief excavation geologist for Exxon for all of the U.S. except for um, California and Alaska when he retired, and and he he commented to me. Uh, we we just got spoiled, you know. Like uh, the oil was there wasn't a lot more oil. We we had sort of we had reached our you know what we could get for the most part, and demand was really higher than supply, and that's why we had sort of high uh, price trends. Uh, and then there was the the big shale fracking boom some years later that sort of destroyed that <laughs> that ideology of of you know experts even in the field uh, from not long before. Do you see the potential, you know, we, there's obviously uh, cobalt gets sort of a lot of movement towards nickel because of cobalt pricing right. being rather high and a sort of the, the risk of, of it getting, of going up. Do you see sort of movements in this sector on the edge that, you know, could be disruptive in the mining side of things? To sort of to 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 really open up the field a lot more to to make it a lot easier f- to find suitable places or or um, or to mine much more cheaply some of these especially cobalt nickel uh, well, co- cobalt more than I, you know nickel is a very big mature industry I, I, well even so you know do you see any of that sort of on the edge potentially coming you know stuff that you're monitoring. Or is it sort of just there, there are these methods, this is what we're going to use going forward as well, and you know, finding the best places to, to spend capital is, is most important. I love the question. You know, it really gets to what's the fundamental nature of innovation and in natural resources. And I think you point, to the, you point to the shale revolution in oil and gas, and I think that's a really interesting example. We've known for many decades that oil and gas resources were tied up in these shale formations. They're just low permeability. And so there wasn't an easy way to extract them. And so, but it, but it is well known in the industry that they exist. So it's not that we don't have enough oil or we don't have enough gas. There's a large amount of it. 
it's just we're way out there on the supply cost curve because it's expensive to extract. And the nature of the innovation was a method of inexpensively extracting gas and oil resources from these tight formations, which we all we all know about in, in North America. Uh, and so you know, where might there be innovations like that in, in minerals? And there are lots of low-grade resources. You go look at the, the fringes of the, of the copper porphyry deposits in South America, and there's, there's you know, low-grade copper halos around there that, of course, could be mined. And that's just far out on the, on the supply curve, and there's gargantuan amounts of copper in those resources. In the nickel space, there are laterite resources that are very high volume, uh, and there are, you know, there's a tremendous tonnage in, in low-grade nickel sulfide resources as well. You know, look at the Duluth complex in North America, but you know, we're talking about a tenth of a percent nickel. So you would need a, a technological innovation to extract the metals from these low-grade resources. But the problem, you know, compare this to petroleum, where all you have to take are the fluids out of the reservoir, and you get to leave the rocks in place. Mining's really hard unless you are solution mining, where you know you're you're pumping solvents or acid into the ground and dissolving the metal and taking it back up. And you know you, you have to take the rocks out of the ground and bring them to surface in order to process them. It's really hard to build a processing plant in the subsurface. There are solution mining methods. They're you know they're they're used in in precious metals sometimes, um, but they're you know they're they're sort of predictably difficult. I think there's definitely room for innovation in processing things like nickel laterite resources, and a number of companies are are working on this today. And and those, it, those would be bigger companies like Al, Albemarle and and Vale and these kind of companies, or yeah. sort of startups. Uh, well, there are there are startups working on. Uh, you know, there's uh, you have um, companies like Lilac Resources trying to do this for lithium more effective ways of, of extracting lithium that are you know, really, really interesting. And, and if they're successful at commercial scale, will be really compelling. They're going to take resources and move them on the, on the supply curve. And that's essentially what happened in, in North America in conventionals. And, but, uh, you know, it's, it's largely a large company R&D game, though there are some, some startups there. It's because the, you know, the scale of even a pre-commercial pilot is, you know, is, is tens of millions of dollars. And again, I said, pre-commercial. So, so that's possible. The question is whether those things are going to be, um, are, are, are going to be, you know, comparable costs to what we've got today. And I, we at least have a strong hypothesis that there, some of these things are going to work, but they're still likely to be more expensive than high quality resources that we're producing today. And so this is a roundabout way of getting to why Cobalt is doing what we're doing but we see the greatest opportunity for innovation in the methods for finding high quality resources. Because if the solution is not, we're gonna invent new technologies for extracting smaller amounts of metal from larger amounts of rock with complex mineralogy, the solution is we need to find really high quality resources and we need to do a better job at finding those. And that means winkling signals out of noisy data sets that's a more tractable problem, and that's one that we have. Uh, we have an extraordinary new set of capabilities with with cloud computing that that's only become available in the last few years. That's a really rich and fruitful problem to tackle. And if we're successful, then we're going to have some really high quality resources rather than rather than innovation in in uh, in processing methods. Though there there may be some of that as well. 
Yeah, the questions were sent to you outside of what you do. And, and I figured two things. One is uh, you would have a, a good eye on that if, you know, sort of comment on that if you saw it happening. And two, it, do, it does give you the opportunity to come back around to the easiest, <laughs> the easiest way to uh, improve this, the market is to fi find stuff better, um, which seems very logical. Also very Silicon Valley kind of, you know, it's, it's the information, <laughs> it's the information, stupid. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's the data, it's the data. We're going to get, we're going to get better at finding things rather than inventing new things to find. Right. And that has been a typical story in natural resources innovation. We haven't invented substitutes for oil. We still fuel our cars with gasoline until I hope we transition them to yeah. EVs. Um, but you know, for 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 decades, we you know the, we've gotten better at finding uh, natural resources. We have more innovative ways of of looking for things, and you know, you, you see this, you see all these examples of this in the petroleum space. Three D seismic being just totally transformative for being able to understand the subsurface. And, and, it, and there's so, tremendous potential to do that in minerals. Yeah, it's also the old uh, improve what you're doing incrementally, consistently, or or have kind of breakthrough idea. And so solar is not a perfect uh, comparison, but solar is a place where, you know, for years there are all these talks about potential breakthrough technologies, innovations, but it was just the, the incremental constant improvement of the existing uh crystalline silicon that you know drove down the price and kept driving down the price lower and lower where it got harder and harder for any kind of alternative solar breakthrough to to be competitive and so you sort of have similar to oil oil where it's just you know the same thing but better um well one more thing on the uh, uh going back to the, the shale revolution ironically uh i mean another factor there was the kind of the cheney loophole or cheney rule or whatever that that made fracking um, like basically you know legal uncontestable uh, sort of uh, sort of open the doorway to it. Um, one of the big questions I have with with the minerals and mining is it's seen as a dirty industry. Nobody really wants to you know be in front of a ribbon cutting at a mine as a politician. Uh, I mean, some do, but you know, it's it's generally not. It's not the same as being at the ribbon cutting of the Gigafactory in Austin or something. It doesn't have the same sex appeal or, or you know, popularity. But there's a major question of you know a lot of a huge percentage, large majority of cobalt processing happens in China, uh, and there's a kind of China has sort of a kind of uh, almost OPEC. Uh, domination of, of some of these markets already. And there's a lot of concern about, you know, expanding the geographic, uh, the market geographically to make, you know, the North America, Europe, bigger players in, in this, you know, the, the mining and processing parts of the, of the industry. Can you speak a little bit about that? And also how, you know, your kind of Silicon Valley approach to uh, you know, information is king, data is gold, uh, might help to diversify that or, or not. I don't know. You know. I don't know if that's in your, in your kind of focus area. It's a, a great and rich set of questions there. I guess, you know, in terms of um, uh, development of, of new mineral resources, I think there are always going to be some local impacts of a new development. 
And it's our responsibility as an exploration company to focus on areas where we think it's possible to develop a new mineral resource in an environmentally sound and sustainable way. And to do so without disrupting really sensitive environments and to do so in a way that provides benefit to the community that actually hosts the development. And that is, that, that's, part of, that's part of our responsibility as an exploration company. Now, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I didn't think that was possible in, in most parts of the world. And we are looking in developing countries and OECD countries. We have assets in Canada. We're working on properties in the United States. We, we are working on properties in Sub-Saharan Africa as well. And the challenges are unique in each of those places, but in each of, in each of the terrains where we're exploring, we think it's possible to develop resources responsibly. And if you, know, you build the right buy-in, uh, then it is possible to get, to get resources developed. And there are, there, while there are impacts, there are benefits to the community as well. Uh, and a number of communities are actually quite supportive. So it, it, that, that's true both generally in terms of you know, employment and what have you, um, but it matters why you're developing the resources as well. It's, it's, it, when, when you go talk to an indigenous community, the fact that we're looking for battery metals and that are gonna go into EV batteries and that ultimately the goal here is mitigating climate change, that's a very different conversation than trying to get an exploration permit for a gold mine where we're gonna take it out of the ground, we're gonna put it back into the ground somewhere else in a vault. <laughs> that's, it, it's very different. And it doesn't, doesn't mean there aren't impacts, but it, it, it affects the consideration of those. Now that's first. Um, second, in terms, you, you pointed to, um, to the geographic concentration of refining capacity in China, which is un- undoubtedly the case. That's, uh, the, that's not your, I know you're, you're not the, in the refining sector. You're in the... That's right. But I guess the way that we, the way that we think about this as, a, as an exploration company, we make a discovery and we're looking to bring a new resource into production. We're ultimately looking for offtake of our, uh, of, of, our, uh, of our production. And that could be to an automaker directly, as, as you've covered, there are, uh, there are automakers who are increasingly sourcing directly from mines. Of course, Tesla's led the way in this. And, and so then, you know, it's, it's the automaker who's going to be arranging for refining capacity and is going to be making those decisions. In other cases, of course, we're going to be looking to sell into a, you know, to, to a you know, trading marketing firm. Um, or to a refiner or, or battery metals maker directly. And so there's always a, you know, a question of, of whether we are best selling you know, a copper concentrate or a nickel concentrate to, um, to a refiner, or whether it's necessary to build incremental uh, refining capacity and to build a smelter or build, if in the case of a you know, copper cobalt oxide resource, to build solvent extraction and electro-winning circuits at the mine site and just produce metal that we sell into the, into the market. And so if, there is, if there's a need to do so at the time, that's going to be part of the underwriting of the new development. And again, it's going to come back to the price signal. If a buyer of those commodities doesn't like what they can get from the current marketplace, they're going to be more willing to pay for a refined product. And that's going to affect ultimately the business case of a new development and what, what product is sold from that facility. Yeah, and so I guess on the political side, um, I you know I, 
I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to put put any weight on left or right, but um, I'm, I'm 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 very progressive, you know, coastal elite, whatever, uh, you know, in my political leanings. But I find it fascinating that Dick Cheney basically, with that kind of loophole, was a big force behind the shale revolution. And I'm just wondering, with the Biden administration coming in, very strong climate goals, uh, but that that sort of delicate balance of mining is sort of dirty, but it's critical for our clean tech future. Do you see anything in specific that you would like to see the the administration or the U.S. as a whole just just do? Or any any particular like man, if if they would do this, we could we have a lot more resources in North America in the United States. Um, are there any policy matters in that regard that that you're sort of eyeing or thinking about? There is, I think, there's increasing recognition and from progressive politicians as well that critical materials are necessary for meeting our climate goals. Ultimately, we're going to have solar panels and we're going to have EVs. We need the raw materials for those. And there aren't sufficient stocks of them already out there that we can produce them through recycling. We can, we can recycle batteries into new batteries. And so once we put cobalt and nickel into circulation, they will remain in circulation because recycling rates are very high. It's much more economical to make a battery out of a battery than it is to make a battery out of ore. <laughs> so, uh, so but, but we just don't have those materials in circulation today. The stocks of batteries are too low. They're not, they're not millions of electric vehicles reaching the end of their life today. So if, if those raw materials are necessary, then the question is where and how are they gonna be produced? And is the US itself going to be a part of producing these raw materials? And to the extent that they're going to be produced in other parts of the world, how can the U.S. enable sustainable development of mineral resources in other parts of the world? And I think for us, there isn't a specific policy wish list, and, but I think there's a, a recognition that it would be good for some of those battery minerals to be developed here in the U.S. as well, uh, and that that is the, the role of those critical materials in our energy future is something that should be considered in broad policy debates and permit applications and so on, whether it's on federal lands or not. Actually, the U.S. is, is surprisingly mining friendly on, on federal lands. There's, it's, it's surprising. There's actually no royalty on mining on, yeah. on federal lands in the U.S., which is 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 that, so I, I mean, I, I know oil and gas sector gets a big benefit from this. I wasn't there, sure there if that was across the board. On, in, that's for minerals. That's not the case for oil and gas. So that is the, the U.S. is unusually friendly in, in that regard. Okay. Um, but uh, but a recognition that 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 that, that would be would be good for the U.S. to lead the way here as well. And then abroad, you know, we um, one of the big impediments to sustainable development of mineral resources. It's not just environmental impact, it's corruption. It's that the, you know, the way to get mineral resources developed needs to be by following the appropriate regulatory process and engaging with communities and environmental ministries and mining ministries. And, and it you know, takes some time and ideally that should converge in, in finite time so that investors actually wanna put capital to work. Uh, not by uh, 
by avoiding those channels and working directly with, with politicians, which you know, happens too often in, in too many parts of the world. So the U.S. is taking some strides in this direction. You know, the, the Energy Resources Governance Initiative at the U.S. Department of State is a, is a good and recent example. And I think I, I expect that programs like that are things that the Biden administration is going to be keen to continue um, because you know, responsible development of mineral resources abroad is really good for the global economy and for global progress towards meeting our, our climate mitigation goals. So it sounds like in summary, you, you see the political class policymakers on both sides being quite receptive to the needs of, uh, in this area and um, nothing specific that you're, you've been like uh, wishing would get changed or something in that regard. Okay. Uh, so, so a final uh, fun question for you. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, Tesla has uh, you know, a battery day announced big plans. Uh, they, it, it hasn't gotten a ton of attention, but you know, it, it, it's getting noted repeatedly now that they want to produce 20 million electric vehicles in 2030, not by 2030, but in 2030, that many vehicles in one year. Um, that's a big part of their, their battery that they're even they're, they're vent, venturing into mining because they, they see a great need uh, for minerals. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, even the sort of bullish market analysts right now are expecting that they get to 5 million vehicles a year in 2030. What's your, you know, just looking at the, the mineral market and of course, you know, leaving room for surprises, what's your kind of expectation for what's actually possible in, in 2030, just fundamentally in that regard? <laughs> I, uh, I can see, sorry, don't, you're tiptoeing, I'm sorry to give you a tough question, but, you know, answer it as you wish, uh, you know, you can plead the fifth if you want, I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, I, it's, one can, one can get into trouble saying that certain things are going to be possible or not, uh, and that, uh, you know, I think. And there's a long, I mean, there's a long track record of people saying Tesla's plans were impossible and then them achieving them. Uh, so, you know, exactly. there's, there's obviously headroom, but just uh, it's a bold, I mean, and, and like, you know, speaking with benchmark on intelligence, you know, when, when that announcement came out, I mean, it's sort of their, their battery production plans blew away the pipeline that, I mean, it was like doubling the pipeline or something. Um, so it's obviously a big challenge. It's hard. Elon has acknowledged it's hard, but just like fundamentally looking at the at the mineral markets, what's your kind of expectation of you know, I guess not what's possible, but what looks more likely and more practical, without you know big surprise successes from from Tesla, for example. I mean, I think as we talked about earlier, I think it would be if the the industry overall is at thirty percent or more new vehicle sales are electrics, then that would be an extraordinary success for the industry. And that will be, there will be incredible incremental raw materials that are produced in order to meet that demand. Assuming that what we're talking about is, is largely battery electrics with good sized battery and batteries in them, you know, rather than, than plug-in hybrids with five kilowatt hour batteries. Uh, and, and and I think I think the global market was about seventy million vehicles uh, a year um, recently, which would be so. I think so a, thirty. I think by yeah, I I had in mind you know ninety 
5 million vehicles recently and growing oh. more than 100 million vehicles. Certainly by 2030, we're talking, you know, north of 100, 105, 110 million vehicles. So, you know, 30 or 40 million EVs of, of some kind in 2030 would be an extraordinary number for the industry. And I, I will make no prediction about the, <laughs> yeah. the market share there. I think, you know, Tesla has that, exceeded a number of, of plans of what people thought possible. And by setting aggressive targets, you know, things were, things were achieved that people didn't think possible. And, and I think I, and I'm, I'm excited about, you know, aggressive plans in that direction. And I like that the, the industry has oriented itself so strongly towards incremental production of EVs. And I hope that, that we in the, in the raw materials sector are successful in providing sufficient raw materials in order to actually put those EVs on the road. Yeah. And so 30 to 40 million a year, uh, that, that leaves people, people can guesstimate for themselves what the hell they see that market splitting in 2030. You know, Volkswagen's got big, every automaker has plans. Otherwise, they have, they're going out of business from penalties in Europe, you know, for uh, CO2 penalties. But um, yes, it gives a bit of perspective, I think, to think about that that matter. Uh, there's a fr- friend of mine has a Twitter account. Don't don't bet against Elon or never bet against Elon is sort of a, you know, a phrase in the, in the world these days after the past eight years, but it's um, there's no doubt that the 2030 plans are ambitious and sort of jaw dropping. Right. And uh, is there, if, if, if the, you know, just one last hypothetical. So if instead of 30 to 40 million, the, we had like 70 to 80 million EVs sold in 2030. How would that happen? What would have happened to make that possible? That you know that that would be obviously very challenging or almost impossible for from your perspective today. What would have to go differently? My my view is that it it that ramping up that quickly in terms of critical materials production is uh, is more than just unlikely. You know, think about it. If we said that um, oil production would need to increase by 50% or 100% in a decade, and that you know that those would be extraordinary. Natural resources don't change production rates that quickly. So if we actually were to get to 70 or 80% market share by 2030, then I think we're talking about smaller vehicles or shorter range vehicles. Uh, or we're talking about, you know, cobalt and nickel-free battery chemistries like lithium iron phosphate, which just have a lot of limitations from a performance perspective. And so I think, you know, a combination of those is, is possible. I think there are, there are a number of markets where some of those vehicles do find market acceptance, where plug-in hybrids are good solutions, and most of the miles driven will still be on battery power because we're talking about short trips in urban centers and whatnot. And you know, in most of the world, we don't we don't drive vehicles that weigh two tons the way that we do in the, in the U.S. Uh, you know, large large volume vehicles and, and long distances. And so I think the U.S. And I guess, yeah. and I guess on on the mining side of things with nickel and cobalt specifically, do you is there a possibility for a much stronger push from the investment world in the next two years, one to two years, um, 
do you, do you see this as a, as a critical matter? Like how much the investment world looks at this market and says, we need to ramp up production ASAP as much as possible. We're going to pour money into it. Uh, do you see that as changing significantly what's possible by 20, 2030? Only to a limited degree. I think, you know, the, the sort of founding thesis of cobalt is, is that we have to discover more mineral resources, not just take ones that exist and put them into production. There are a relatively small number of projects today that are essentially ready to start construction. And so those are the things that could be in production in you know, 2023 or 2024 if someone finishes a feasibility study and starts, starts digging today. And if we're talking about you know, new discoveries, the timeline is much longer. And you know, if you look at the investment world, there, there are exploration companies, there are a small number of institutional investors in that space. And then of course the majors and mid-tiers have, have exploration programs, but you know, tends to maybe a couple of hundred million dollars a year at the largest. And, and you know, there aren't, in, investors tend to, especially, especially institutional investors, private equity, tend to invest in projects that they can underwrite. They look at the technical merits of a project and want to put capital into it. And there is a need for a lot of greenfields exploration, a lot of new idea generation, going out collecting the data to define targets and testing those targets and then developing, delineating and developing those resources. And so there would, you know, there would have to be a tremendous amount of investment towards the, the very front end of the cycle um, which is, you know, to a majority degree, the, the junior miners are the ones occupying that sector. And, and you know, there's the, we need to be more successful than the sector has been overall at exploration. And that requires more capital and better deployment of that capital, which is, which is why Cobalt was formed. Okay, final, final question, I swear. Uh, so if, uh, you know, one, one thing that surprises a lot of people, as Elon has said repeatedly, if you throw a lot more money, I mean, even if we had a ton more money in the bank, it wouldn't really be used. Like we, our limitation is battery production, and you know we can't just build that many more vehicles if we have that much more money. It would, what would be the situation if we threw ten times more money at cobalt? Would you be able to find a lot more cobalt real quickly, or do you have a similar kind of? Well, you know, we have the money we need. We're we're trying to find as much as we can, but it's not a financial limitation. It's just a, a matter of other, it's other matters or, or would 10 times more money be like, yeah, we can find it 10 times more cobalt. <laughs> yeah, there, it, we are, we are very well resourced. You know, we, you see who our investors are. And so we have the opportunity to do a lot. And, and it is, we've, our technology development is going extremely well. We're way ahead of our plan. And we are looking for great opportunities to deploy, it, to deploy our technology on more and more data. And so we are rapidly building our capacity uh, to evaluate more and more, more, and more projects. Uh, we have many things in our portfolio and we are acquiring, acquiring many more. And, uh, and, you know, we are, we are going very, very quickly. And I think that, uh, the progress on that front has been very encouraging. Well, it looks like you have a tremendous team. So thank you for spending time with us to uh, go through all of this and offer your expertise. Uh, best of luck. Uh, it looks like you, you really have a, a bright future. Um, 
you look like you have a lot of things in order. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Zach. It's been a pleasure being here. And thank you, listeners. Check in next time to get your electric fix. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thank you.